Well, good morning, church. How are you guys doing? Good, good, good. What a joy it is to be here together as we continue to explore uh, what it looks like for us uh, to follow Jesus uh, in our expressions to him with one another through worship, in our exploration of his truth through his word and through the gathering of the biblical community uh, and the journey of submitting uh, ourselves to him because we become more and more clear of how great his love for us is. Not because we are obligated to him out of fear, but because we are in awe of him out of his love. This is the journey we're on. And God, as he expresses himself to us, reveals himself to us uh, through his word, from Genesis to Revelation, uh, is unpacking for us a story, a reality, a truth, uh, the way of his kingdom, the way of his character that leads to life and leads to freedom and, and is light to us that, that moves us out of darkness, that moves us out of bondage, and that moves us away from and out of death. This is the story of scripture. This is the gospel that he came to save us from these things. And everything we encounter in scripture is ultimately God coming to us with that heart of a father to protect us from death and darkness and bondage so that we might be full of life and freedom and light. That's what he's doing. And uh, we are currently, as we've been traveling through scripture uh, from a Genesis onward uh, through the chronological uh, historical timeline of scripture. We have found ourselves now in the time zone of the late 60s AD. So we are in AD 67, 68, 69 before AD 70. Uh, in this time of history, uh, the uh, New Testament authors are scripting these letters that God, by his spirit, is inspiring them to write that will become the New Testament. And these letters are going out during this time, uh, and they are instructing the church. So the early letters of the New Testament, uh, after the historical things like the Gospels and the book of Acts, the early letters were a lot of instruction on what the gospel is. Uh, how to understand the gospel, how to see it, how to live in it, uh, just sort of a lot of gospel talk. And then these later letters, the ones we're in now, 2 Timothy, 2 Peter, Titus, Jude, uh, these are much more instructive to the people that follow Jesus now, still the gospel ever present in them, but a lot of leaning into since the gospel is the gospel and Jesus is Jesus and you now know that, Hey, remember these things, live this way, be careful of this. This is the season we're in. Like any good book unfolding that is telling us a story uh, of a truth, we are now in that instructive season. And we are in particular in the letter uh, written by Jude uh, to a church, as far as we can tell, we don't know specifically, likely a church, perhaps a grouping of churches, but likely a church because uh, by the way Jude unpacks this letter, it is very clear that the church he is writing to or the people that he's writing to are primarily, if not exclusively, from a Jewish background. Followers of Jesus, but from a Jewish background. The reason we know this is because Jude in, uh, utilizes the Old Testament 
to tie back to stories and realities without unpacking them, to make the letter concise and short and summaried, but make very strong points. And you wouldn't be doing that to a primarily Gentile audience because the points would be lost on them if they didn't have a large congregation of Jewish people going, that's that story, that's that point, that's, and, and just sort of these aha moments, like what I've said in the past, quotes from movies for us. I can, I, can, I can say one quote from a movie, and you kind of get the scene of the movie, the point of that scene, the point of that movie, and I can make a strong illustration with that with a single sentence. Judas doing this over and over and over again, utilizing the Old Testament and the Old Testament stories. Literally by using words in context that you and I wouldn't fathom tied to the Old Testament, but absolutely do and bring to picture. So we know Judas writing to this audience uh, that is primarily Jewish. And it is apparent that Judas writing toward the end of the late 60s, remember after AD 70, really you only have 1st, 2nd, 3rd John and Revelation coming. Uh, besides that, and, and the book of Hebrews fits in there somewhere, late 60s, early 70s, it, it's, it's in there, right? But that's what's left. And so this letter is also being written in a time where, like I said, 2nd Peter, 2nd Timothy, Titus, all these letters are circulating and you will see Jude pulling from that collective reality, making the assumption that the church is aware of all these themes that have been out in these letters. So that, that's kind of where we're at. Now, Jude started this letter out, if you remember, uh, saying he wants to write to uh, the church uh, about the common salvation. We have the gospel, the glorious gospel, and, and he does want to do that. But there's an issue going on that needs some serious instruction. And so instead, he needs to write a letter to urge us, the church, to contend for the faith. Why would he need to write a letter to urge the church to contend for the faith? Because they are not contending well. They are not contending well. This church is not contending well. How does he know they're not contending well? Because in their midst has come uh, false teachings at the hands of false teachers, and they have let that come in unnoticed and then let that infiltrate and shape the way that the church is thinking, believing, and functioning. And Judas, like, no, 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 no. We have got to remedy this because when we allow false teaching to come into our midst unnoticed and false, through false teachers, and then that false teaching shapes the way we think, believe, and behave, it is deadly to the glory of God, to the church, to the people of God. God's glory will reign with or without us, but it is not what we were made for. We were made to bring him glory, to expand his kingdom, and to live in light, life, and freedom. And false teaching leads to the uh, annihilation of all of that. So you can imagine God's heart in this letter to his people saying, please pay attention. This is going to kill you. It's going to hurt you. It's going to destroy you. Don't do that. And that is the letter that we're in. Uh, Jude is dealing with the false teachers in one part of the letter. And his tone there is dramatic and overwhelming and a clear a description of how destructive they and the false teaching is. It is a warning in every way. You better stop because this is going to go very badly for you. You arrogant people. That's how he's dealing with that. And then we will get to that. 
where he deals with those uh, of the people in the church that are the recipients or victims of false teaching, have bought in, have not contended well for the faith, but are the recipients and victims. And his tone there is, come on, guys, wake up. You, you can do this. It's not a tone of warning or judgment or, or, or uh, it is an urging and a begging. Come on, take this seriously. That is how this letter unfolds. Right now, we are in the part of the letter that Jude is dealing with the false teachers themselves and their false teachings. And so it could feel like, as we deal with these particular parts of Jude, that we are sort of sideline observers to to things we know uh, nothing of. I I would assume most of you here are not false teachers uh, by knowledge or intent, right? Most of us are in that category of we could fall victim to false teaching. We we might not be awake to false teaching, but I don't think most of us here are like, I'm one of the false teachers. This is the, this passage is for me. And so it can feel like, okay, I'll listen in, but it's not really for me, and we couldn't be more wrong in this sense. Two, two things. One, the urgency for making sure that if we are going to teach, we are teaching out of the right places is for all of us. Here's why. Who is supposed to go into all the world and make disciples? All of us, which means in order to make disciples, we have to preach to someone the gospel and the right one. And then we have to teach them what it means to follow Jesus from the right word in the right way. How many of you guys are going to uh, and are in your life called to be teachers in some context? All of of you. That's right. You're like, I don't know. I don't want to do it. Because you think it means on a stage. It does not. Anytime you are dialoguing with someone about Jesus, you are being recipient and being participant in teaching. So there is a component to which we all are responsible to make sure that we understand what we need to be doing so that we don't get that wrong. And also in describing how these false teachers have found themselves in this place, he is going to describe in dramatic terms what went wrong with them. And anytime we are looking at something that went badly wrong, it becomes a cautionary tale, does it not? And a cautionary tale's point is to help you and I not go wrong. So pay attention to how dramatically these false teachers went wrong, where and how. And then you and I will have the opportunity to say, don't do those things. Or make sure you don't neglect those things. Or make sure you do these things because they didn't. And therefore they are where they are now. Do you want to be where they are? No. So I'm going to pay attention to what he shows me, Jude, by the Spirit, of where the false teachers went wrong so that I don't walk that path. This is incredibly applicable to us. Now, the last thing I'll say before we jump into this passage is the passage we're about to step into right now is absolutely wondrous because it is so foreign to the way we typically read and understand scripture because it's super weird to us. I I love passages like this that if you read them by yourself or I did by myself without the clarity of context, you would be like, I have no idea what just happened. I have no idea what I just read. Most of you, when we said we're doing Jude, you're like, is that that in the Bible? Some of you are like, I read it once going through the scriptures on my journey through the Bible in 10 years. Uh, it was going to be one, but it turned out to be 10, uh, those kinds of things. And, and Jude was like, yeah, there was a whole, whole sections of Jude that were just weird. Yep, that's Jude. It's a short book and it's got a lot of weird stuff in it. It's not weird at all. It's incredible. What Jude does 
to tie the story together here and to show the reality that these truths of false teachings being dangerous and false teachers being dangerous have been true from the beginning of the story in Genesis is absolutely beautiful and should give us great, a great sense of wonder as we are reminded that we are not the first recipients of false teachings and not the first to be called to be cautious of them. This has been the ongoing reality of humanity. It will be until Jesus brings time to an end. Uh, and it is now. And so he's going to do some wonderful things in this. Let's go and take a look how this plays out. Grab your Bibles. Go to the book of Jude. Uh, as I said, it is right before Revelation. Your easiest way to find it is go to the very back to Revelation page backwards. And right before Revelation chapter 1, there is Jude. If you're in a smart device, Jude chapter 1 verse 8. There's only one chapter, so verse 8. Here we go. <clears throat> verse 8 of the book of Jude. Yet, in like manner, these people also. Who are the these people he is referring to? The false teachers. Just want to put that on the table so we know who we're talking about here. These people are the ones who are actually teaching falsely to the congregation. The ones that have snuck in unnoticed. The ones that are bringing about this destruction. These people also... Relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. So right out of the gates, Jude establishes uh, some things that these false teachers have stepped into that have caused them to become who they are, the false teachers. And these things are very important for us to explore because they are the grid now through which we go, aha, be careful of these things. Don't do these things. Reverse order these things so that you are not caught up in either being recipient of false teachings unnoticed or becoming false teacher yourself unintentionally or, or intentionally. Where does it begin? It says they are people that rely on their dreams. What on earth does this mean? This is one of those circumstances where you are encountering a sentence, and if you take the sentence literally, like we would, relying on their dreams, you would say, when they sleep at night, they have dreams, and they're taking those dreams, and they're building uh, realities out of those dreams. That is certainly part of this, that within our dreams, because oftentimes we experience God speaking, or not God speaking through our dreams, but uh, Jude is using this in a much broader sense, and you'll see how it ties to the Old Testament in this way. He's using this in a much broader sense, saying, when we as people rely on the things that are intangible that we experience, our, our dreams, our visions, our, our instincts, our feelings, the things that come with the whole world of, I had an experience that seemed and felt like it was powerful and right and from God, therefore it is true. We are in deep, dangerous waters. Because sometimes our dreams, our visions, our instincts, our feelings are true, right? Anybody out there? Sometimes they're true. Sometimes you have a dream and it's true, or a, a feeling and, it, and it's, it happens to align with God's word and it's true. And sometimes they're what? Not true. And what he's saying here is, when you as a person, when these false teachers take what you feel, what you sense, what you vision, what you experience, what you feel strongly to be true, because it seems right to you, and you elevate that to determine truth, even though it may oppose 
the logical truths you know to be true of God, you are in dangerous waters. In our culture, if James, uh, Jude were writing to us, he might say, when you fall into the category, you might say, the false teachers have fallen into the category of this. If it feels right, it must be right. If it feels right, it must be true. If it feels strongly enough, and in fact, if God says something and it feels not right, then we must have it wrong. If God says something we don't like, something that feels like an injustice rather than a justice, something that feels unloving rather than loving, something that feels off rather than on, who is the authority to determine what is just and right and loving and good? A false teacher would say, I am. My feeling of justice overrides what I, and so it's not that God was wrong. It's that I'm misunderstanding what he's saying because God's justice must align with my justice. God's love must align with my version of love. That's what Jude is saying. He's saying false teachers always started here. At some point they began or we began to rely on our own authority, judgment, feelings, dreams, visions to determine truth overriding whatever God says, and we change what we want. When we do that, so listen to this. This is how he ties it to the Old Testament. This is why I say he uses this uniquely. Deuteronomy chapter 13, if a, verse 1, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass. Okay, so this is a pretty cool thing, right? Someone dreamed a dream or had a prophecy, saw a vision, shared it with the congregation, and it came true. So what category are we in now? We're like, do we trust this person? Yeah. yeah. Oh, my gosh. They did it. They said it. It happened. It's awesome. Listen to what he says. And it came to pass. And if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet. Here's what he's saying. If somebody says wonderful things, they come to pass. There seems to be power there. They have insight. It's amazing. You're blown away. And then they say something that opposes the gospel, opposes God, opposes his word. What should you lean into? Their power and prowess and wonder and, and coming true of things or the fact that they're opposing God. But you see, we, 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 we nod and we're like, oh, yeah, of course. You know how little we actually do that? We are enamored with people that say and do things and then they come to pass in whatever version you want. And so he's saying, man, listen, this is what dreamers do. Listen to this. This is in uh, Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 16. Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They, they say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. <laughs> Just don't listen to these folks. And he's using dreams and visions here in Jeremiah 23, verse 25. I have heard what the prophets have said who prophesy lies in my name saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. So Jude here is tying back to what the audience of this particular passage would immediately connect to when he says when they rely on their own dreams he's speaking prophetic language he's speaking about a teacher or prophet of God and he's saying just because their dreams seem real feel real or their instincts or their uh, articulations do not buy it if it does not align with my word and when people 
get to the point where they rely on their own dreams, visions, instincts, etc., rather than God's word, here are the things that begin to happen. This is sort of consequential then. They defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. What are we talking about here? As soon as we begin to rely on our own determination of what is true, especially when it opposes something God seems to say that we don't like or feel is right, what it's going to lead to one way or the other inevitably is a staining of the flesh, meaning a staining of the purity that God is creating in us following his way. When we follow his way, it leads to light. When we follow his way, it leads to life. When we follow his way, it leads to freedom, right? And the second we don't follow his way, it leads to death and it leads to bondage and it leads to darkness. And the reality of our lives becomes stained. The flesh becomes stained. It defiles the flesh. It does that either through self-righteousness or it does it through self-governance, lawlessness. You do what you want. Those are the two places false gospels and false teachers always take us. That we become self-reliant on our own good to prove to God how awesome we are so that he will bless us, a pagan view of God. Or we're so content in what God has done for us that we now get to do whatever we want, whenever we want, and anything is good if it feels right. Either of those defile the flesh. Not only do they defile the flesh, but it says uh, they reject authority. The inevitable end of trusting yourself over other things, me trusting myself, is that eventually all authority means nothing to me. Because I even determine then what I buy in as authority. I will let you or God's word or God be an authority of my life until he says something that opposes what I feel or think. In which case, then I will take authority and tell him, oh, you're wrong and change what he says. See, the inevitable end of a view that says what I feel, what I think, what I see must be right is that any authority is then diminished and you have none. And when you have no authority, that is outside of the way God designed everything to work and a lone human always goes badly. Because me believing me, not a good idea. And the blaspheme, blaspheming of the glorious ones. Uh, commentators and biblical scholars uh, struggle with this one a little bit back and forth. Either one works. So it doesn't frankly matter which one it is because they both lead to the same point. But just so you know, these are the two conclusions here. Either what this means is that they stand arrogantly against the angelic beings and the world uh, of God. So they blaspheme the power and wonder of the angelic beings, the glorious ones. It's sort of like saying, I know God's world is powerful, but I, I don't care. I ignore that. Or it means that they speak dismissively of and ignore the power of darkness and they dabble in it a lot. In Second Peter, he uses the same language, blaspheme the glorious ones. And there he speaks to the idea that they dabble with the dark spirits. They listen to dark spirits and they don't think that there's power there. They blaspheme the power of the supernatural world by dabbling in the darkness. It seems to make most sense that that's what Jude means here, that these false teachers are listening to that which is typically temptation and, and draws us away from God. And they are not taking seriously the power of the spiritual realms in the darkness. 
The part of the reason why this makes most sense that he means that versus blaspheming the angelic world is because remember, Jude and Peter uh, share a lot in their letters. So it seems like he's borrowing language or Peter borrowed this language from him. And the story he's about to tell actually demonstrates this reality of not taking lightly the authority of God, even when it comes to the power of darkness. And so I, either way, here's what he's saying. Their arrogance increases to the point where they stop caring about the power of God or the power of the spiritual realm, the power of anything. They see themselves as invincible and arrogant enough to do and say whatever they want. This is the inevitable journey. You start believing what you think and feel above anything else. It's going to defile the flesh. It's going to lead you to a place uh, where you begin to ignore authority. And it's eventually going to lead you to be arrogant in every way. There's the journey. Welcome. That's how we get there. Now, now Jude begins a journey and he just, he travels through the Old Testament in two verses in an extraordinary way. Listen to this. He makes nine Old Testament references in two verses. (laughs) I've never seen anything like it. Nine Old Testament references. If you were a Jewish person, you would just be like story for story for, it's like he's telling nine stories. Imagine if you want to make a point, you're like, okay, I'm going, to sh- I'm going to show you this. I'm going to tell you nine long stories by telling you nine quick little shortcuts to those long stories that you already know. I don't have to repeat them. That's what he's about to do. But before he does that, he does something quite odd that ends up being quite beautiful. He says this, verse nine, but when the archangel Michael contending with the devil was disputing about the body of Moses. He did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but he said, the Lord rebuke you. What just happened, right? You got Michael, the archangel, hanging out, uh, arguing with the devil uh, in a dispute over Moses's body. (laughs) And Michael apparently didn't rebuke the devil. What? Where is this in scripture? What Old Testament reference is this? Zip, zero, nada, it's not in scripture. Is Michael in scripture? Yes, he is. As a matter of fact, in Daniel, uh, in two places, chapter 10 and chapter 12, and in the book of Revelation in chapter 12, uh, Michael is mentioned. Gabriel and Michael are the two angels we encounter in scripture by name, and so we know of Michael. Uh, In this, You go back into the Old Testament for this story where Moses, uh, his body was disputed over and it's not in the Old Testament. The death of Moses is recorded in Deuteronomy chapter 34, but this story is not. Where this story is found is in what we call extra biblical uh, writings. Extra biblical writings are things that were written throughout history, shared throughout history by the biblical community that did not become scripture, but is part of the insight that we have either of the historical realities or context or of the implications of scripture through story. The thing about extra biblical writings is twofold. It's not authoritative, which means that we can learn a bunch from it. We can enjoy it. It can enhance and color in the scriptures for us like historical context often does or further stories. It can be testimony, but it is not authoritative in that we would say it is because it's written. Therefore, absolutely true. The story is true. It actually happened. It may have happened. It may just be a means by the biblical community sharing story to make points. Extra biblical Uh, narratives and writing are helpful, but not authoritative. And second of all, uh, they are a part of how the biblical community takes the authoritative word of God 
and wrestles with it. Commentaries are very helpful, but they're not authoritative. They are theologians wrestling with the implications of Scripture and the truths of Scripture, and we should take that very seriously. They're very helpful, but we should always take them with a different grain than we do Scripture. You with me? Are any extra biblical writings, because they're not Scripture, not authoritative, leave them alone, stay away from them, they're bad, don't learn from them? No, of course not. In fact, a lot of times, what, what happens is, and not a lot of times, God actually says, the way you wrestle with Scripture is never by yourself exclusively. Do you wrestle with Scripture by yourself at times? Of course you do. But what is demanded is that you're always determining the truth of Scripture in community. Because you're not smart enough to do it by yourself. you got too much human in you. Yes, you have the Holy Spirit. Well, therefore, I can discern anything. No, you can't. He, he embodies not in one of us. He embodies in all of us as his body. And we require to be around Jesus together to learn. So what, what Judah's doing right now is pulling an extra biblical story coming out of what is known as the Testament of Moses um, or otherwise named um, the Assumption of Moses written very, very long ago uh, in the early uh, or the, 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 the Old Testament. And in this Assumption of Moses or Testament of Moses, there is a story where after Moses dies, uh, the devil comes and he says that he has right over Moses' body and soul because Moses is a murderer. Remember Moses killed someone? Remember the story? So the devil shows up and says, ah, he may have been Moses, but he murdered somebody, so I'm owed his body and his soul. And Michael is contending for this, saying, ah, uh, no, you don't. That's not how God works. You see how this story is being used to make a beautiful point about God's grace and the gospel, all that already in the Old Testament? It's not scripture, but it is a story that's lived on in Jewish history. They all know the story. And Jude references this and says, in this story, the obvious truth of who Satan was is blatant, is it not? Any question that it's the devil and he should be rebuked. Nope, no question. And the statement the devil's making as claim over Moses' body and soul because he was a murderer, true or untrue? He's making the statement, yes. But it, does he have claim to Moses because he was a murderer? No, because God has a different story. So does Michael the archangel know that it is the devil and he is wrong? He, of course he knows that. And yet, even though he knows this to be true and sees the truth blatantly, when he says, you will be rebuked for this, in other words, I, I rebuke you, this is not true, how does he say it? The Lord will rebuke you. Michael doesn't even take the obvious and justifiable stand to say, I'm Michael the archangel, you're Satan, you're trying to take Moses, God is behind me, I rebuke you. He says, oh, I have bad news for you. The Lord is going to rebuke you on this one. The reason Jude is bringing this to the table is that he has just said false teachers determine truth by themselves, by their feelings. They then become arrogant. They ignore the spiritual realm's power. They ignore truth. They ignore anything. They ignore authority and they do whatever they want. Not even Michael does that. Like, here's what Jude is saying. Are you an idiot? Michael doesn't dare to do that. And you're like looking at Michael, the archangel. You're like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to do it. I know what's right and true. And he's like, be careful, man. Because, wow, Michael didn't do it. 
Michael laid himself under God's authority even when it was obvious what was in front of him. But these people, he says, blaspheme all that they do not understand. And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasonable animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them. Here's what he's saying. When you let your instincts drive you, when it comes to truth, when you let your your dreams and visions and your own understanding of what is right and good drive you, in that arrogance, you actually become incredibly destructive because instead of letting your understanding of God's word drive truth, you let your instincts begin to drive your truth. That is destructive in every way and its arrogance leads to woe to them. This should be a good reminder to all of us. When you do it your way, woe to us. When you do it God's way, life, light, and freedom, right? And then he now hits the Old Testament. Boom, boom, boom. Watch this. For they walked in the way of Cain. They abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. They perished in Coram's rebellion. They are hidden reefs at, the, at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in the late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars from whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. <laughs> like what on earth? And I do love that Jude right now, he's writing and he knows the Old Testament and he's just hop, skipping and jumping through the whole Old Testament, tying together single words and sentences to giant principles and stories of the Old Testament that all speak to the same reality. When you are a false teacher, a false prophet, a person believing falsely going your own way, it leads to nothing but destruction. And what you are choosing to participate in has been humanity of old and humanity of today. Cain did it. Balaam did it. Uh, the, the rebellions. And, and here's what he's saying. Do not divorce yourself, false teacher, from what they're doing. You are doing what they did. And the consequences of what they did will become your consequences. And so he goes through it this way. Here's what you are, false teacher. You've chosen your own authority, abandoning authority, and trusting your instincts, your own. That's what you are. It's just like these folks, Cain, Balaam, Kern, just like them. And look where it led them and look where it leads others like it. And that's when he lays out the waves and things. So let's buzz through real quick and see what happens. Okay, so the Cain story. Cain wanted to do it his way. He wanted what he wanted. He didn't trust God's way, God's word, or God's authority. So he killed his brother. And that did not go well, did it, for his brother or for him. And they're like, you're like Cain, ignoring God's story for you, trusting your own one and taking authority over it. And it's going to go for you like it went for Cain. Not good. And then Balaam actually led the people of Israel uh, in Numbers chapters 22 through 24, so Genesis 4 for Cain, Numbers 22 to 24 uh, for Balaam, he, he was paid by a king who was going to be conquered by Israel to cause them to be immoral so that God would stop blessing them so that he wouldn't get conquered. It's a smart king, I'll give you that. 
He's like, man, they're pathetic, but the God they serve is awesome and powerful. If I can get him mad at them, then he won't bless them and they won't conquer me. Get Balaam to make them do immoral things. And so Balaam tried. And he's like, that does not go well when you are coming into a congregation and trying to turn them from God's way and, and, and cause them to live in their own way. It's like Balaam. And then finally, uh, the rebellion of Coram. Remember, that was where in, in, in Numbers uh, chapter 14, I think, let me just confirm so that I'm not telling you something wrong. Uh, number 16, uh, that is where uh, the people came back from the promised land and they were fighting over that. And, and the rebellion was, we're done with Moses. We're done with Aaron and their authority. We're going back to slavery because it wasn't slavery like this. They ignored the authority God put in place in the biblical community and they went their own way and that went badly. And then he dives into this. So listen to this. Listen, listen to these references. This will give you a sense of how beautifully uh, he is speaking uh, to these things. So shepherds feeding themselves. This is out of Ezekiel chapter 34 verses one. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel, prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, oh, shepherds of Israel, you have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? So he ties to that. So if you're in the congregation getting Jude's letter, when he says shepherds feeding themselves, you're in Ezekiel. And you're like, I remember when this went down, that wasn't good. You should read the rest of Ezekiel. Uh, it is bad. You are, like, uh, you are like waterless clouds. Proverbs chapter 25, verse 14. Like clouds and wind without rain is a man who boasts of a gift he does not give. These false teachers are making promises of where their journey will take you. And it's going to bring the rain. And God's like, no, it won't. No, it won't. Because people that make promises on their own instincts and their own stuff and not on me and not on my way, uh, it's not going to rain. It's not going to rain. Listen to this. Um, Isaiah chapter 5, verses 5 and 6. Uh, this is now uh, talking about a tree that will not bear fruit and is twice dead. It would take you straight here if you were Jewish. And now I will tell you what I will do with my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall. I, I shall trample it down. I will make waste of it. It shall not be pruned or hoed and the briars will consume it. He's talking in this context about people choosing their own way and not following his. And he's like, this is not going to go well. And here he speaks to that. Listen to this. Uh, talking about the sea and like waves being tossed and foaming. Verse 20 of Isaiah 57. But the wicked are like the tossed sea, for it cannot be quiet and its waters toss up myrrh and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. What is Jude doing here? He is tying these false teachers and false teachings to destruction in every way. Judgment in every way. And he's like, man, don't do that. Don't live that way. This is how it goes. And ultimately, here's where it ends. Wandering stars. That's out of Daniel, where he talks about Daniel chapter 10, that those who follow the way of the Lord become stable stars in the sky. Eternal life is theirs. And those that do not uh, are darkness, like the wandering stars. And then he says this. For whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Judah saying to the false teachers, when you do not know God and do not trust God and do not follow God and you bring your teaching to his people and you deceive them, 
utter destruction and gloom has always been the end of your story. Stay away from that. So what do we learn as the people of God, not being told as false teachers, you are on a path to terrible destruction, but being told, remember, if you fall victim to false teaching and you buy into it, then you will experience some of the consequences of this this destruction, not eternally, but certainly you will find yourself in darkness, bondage, and death more than life, light, and freedom if you're doing it your way. How do you make sure you don't? What do the false teachers do? They rely on what? Themselves. What should we rely on? God's word. God's word. So you say, you say, Renault, I don't want to be misguided. I wanna, how, do I, how do I recognize a false teacher? And what you want from me is an email with a two-page summary on how to recognize every false teacher among you. I can't do it. Do you know why? The false teachers bring different false teaching every single month. And they have for 2,000 years. There's so many versions of that. You couldn't touch it if you tried. I could send you thousands of books on each one. And you'll never, ever, ever be able to catch up. Because by the time you've read them, it'll be too late. They'll be gone and dead. And there'll be new ones. So the way you recognize false teaching is by knowing what isn't false. And the way that you know what isn't false is you know God's word. And then you say, okay, how can I get to know God's word? Real quick, because next week, I don't want to be deceived. It's like a long journey. It takes a lot of work. You got to study it and read it and memorize it and be in Bible studies and community and wrestle with it. You've got to ask questions. You can't watch three minute YouTube videos from some person giving you a quick summary of an entire book and go, I know God's word. So guess what? If you do not have a good handle on God's word, if you do not know the full scope of the story of God, if you do not understand some of the realities of God's word, if you don't study it, don't memorize it, don't know it, and you dabble in it here and there with a quick two minute uh, uh, devotional you have every six and a half weeks, and you, then I will tell you, you are very vulnerable to false teaching. Sorry. How do you remedy that? Start now and start doing the work of getting to know God's word. Get into biblical community ask the questions, come to your leaders, mentors, pastors, and whoever else you trust does know God's word and start asking them to teach you and help you and show you, not by doing it for you, but by doing it with you. Start there. It might take you a year or five or 10, but at some point you will know enough of God's word that you will no longer be susceptible to false teaching in the way that you are now because you will see it for what it is because you will know the truth of God. And you start by finding people that know the scope of God's word and understand the gospel and the fruit is, and you start there, you start wrestling. Second, they have no authority. God designed the biblical community that we would study God's word and determine the truth of God's word in community, not just one church, but the historical church. We wrestle with commentaries. We wrestle with history. We try to determine the scope so that not any one of us is determining truth even in God's word. Do you have the spirit of God? Of course you do. But you also have you. And you aren't very good at determining when the spirit is talking to you and when you're talking to you. So to help determine when you're talking to you, you need us. And we need to go, that sounds wonderful, but it's stupid. Did I say that out loud? Yes, I did. Because it opposes God's word. So let me help you understand God's word. We should do that for each other in a nicer way than stupid maybe, but maybe not. Because I love you and you love me and I want to protect you from falsehood, right? But we need to count on each other. That's why I love that Jude used extra biblical context in this. It was almost like he was saying you learn from God's word primarily, nine references, 
but you also learn from the biblical community's understanding of God's word in the stories and testimonies and realities and understanding that they tell, the commentaries. We learn from God's word first and foremost, but we learn God's word in biblical community. God's word is a lamp unto our feet. It's our light. And biblical community, this is the instruction, biblical community, do not neglect meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but hold fast to your faith by meeting together regularly and stirring one another up toward love and good deeds. We are commanded to do this together. So they ignored authority. They did it their own way. We reversed those. And then they listened or blasphemed the the spirits, uh, the, the darkness. They listened to the wrong spirits. Who should we be listening to? God, by his Holy Spirit in us, which means you should be abiding with the spirit regularly. Like, what does that mean? You need to get to know him, hang out with him. Do How do you do that? The disciplines of the faith, they are ours for the taking. And you should be spending time with the spirit of God in regularity through the disciplines of the faith in his word so that you will get to know his voice. So that when someone's speaking, you have a better shot at knowing whether it's him or just your own flesh or uh, temptation. You should know God by abiding in him. This is all over scripture. Abide in me or it's going to go very badly, fruitless. So we need to know the word of God. We need to study the word of God in biblical community and learn from one another because the spirit of God is in us and in me. And we need to abide with the spirit regularly. If we do these things, we become less and less susceptible to false teaching and less prone to teach falsely. And then finally, the simple one. If we do these things, what will occur is that we will get a clarity on the true gospel. Because you can't not, if you're abiding with the Spirit in biblical community, with God's word, and you're digging, you're going to realize the gospel in ways you never, never imagined. And that's how we contend for the faith. We contend for the faith by having a clear view of the right gospel. And whenever something comes our way, false or true, we don't have to defend the gospel. We just have to release it. Let me bring to you the gospel that is true and right. And let's see what the gospel has to say about your teaching. And if it opposes it, then I'm sorry to tell you that your stuff is false. And if it aligns, then I'm glad to tell you, you are expanding the beauty of the gospel. That's why we've said, Our king is the real lion, is he not? And when you want to defend against false teachings, you don't need to defend the lion, you just need to release the lion. The lion can defend himself. But if you are releasing the wrong lion, the wrong gospel, the wrong Jesus, then you are releasing nothing. And it will defend nothing. You need to be in God's word regularly. You need to be in it together in biblical community often. You need to be abiding with the spirit so that you will know the gospel in its true form And then no false gospel will stand a chance because it is up against the true gospel that you know well. If you do those things, you will be safe. If we do those things collectively, then no little flying squirrels will wiggle their way into this room. If you're like, what is that about? Listen to last week's message. No flying squirrels will wiggle their way into this place. And we will stand with each other and for each other, releasing the gospel to confront anything that comes and determine it to be right or true or good so that we do not go by our instincts or feelings. We go by God's word, by his spirit, by biblical community in a true gospel. And then we let our feelings and our instincts drive our worship and our expression and our awe and our relational dynamics. And that's going to be awesome. Welcome to how Jude is saying, please stay safe. You do not want to mess with false teaching. It's dangerous.
and it will kill you. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your incredible love for us and this amazing little letter that you inspired James to, uh, uh, Jude to write uh, that helps us understand the, the depth and wonder of how serious this is. God, thank you that Jude, in just such a wondrous way, hit nine different spaces in the Old Testament to remind the church he was writing to uh, through nine stories, the glorious realities and truths he was trying to describe, to be careful of. Thank you for uh, all the ways that you equip us, prepare us, and have given us every reason to not be afraid of false teachers, not be afraid of false teaching. God, if we are afraid, if we are uncertain, it is because we are not engaging fully in the things you've already provided for us to be safe. Help us to be a people that take seriously the journey to know your word, to do it in biblical community, to learn from one another by your spirit through your word, to make sure that we are constantly and consistently abiding with you together and alone, and that all of that will lead us to a right gospel, a right understanding of the gospel, so that when false gospels come our way, legalistic gospels, lawless gospels, poverty gospels, prosperity gospels, graceless gospels, that we would see them, know them, recognize them, and release you, Jesus, your gospel, to go and defend against the falsehood and bring life, life and freedom to where there is darkness, bondage, and death. Show us the way. And in the meantime, while we are making our way to that safety, through your word, by your spirit, together, would you protect us in our vulnerabilities until we get there? Because we are vulnerable now, and we need you to help us get there safely. Help us to have the courage to put in the work and protect us on the journey until we get there. We pray in Jesus' name.